Father in heaven, we come here because we need to know more. We need, first of all, to know you and to know you better. And we need to know how to make that knowledge fit in our lives and work in our lives and make us servants so that others, too, will come to know you. We pray that this hour will be an hour when your Holy Spirit is in this room to teach us and to guide us and to love us. In Jesus' name. How long would it take you to figure out what the following names have in common? Nadab, Baasha, Elah, Zimri, Omri. Anybody with me yet? Ahab, Ahaziah, Jehoram, Jehu, Jehoiahaz. How are we doing? Any clues? Kings of Israel. Jehoash, Jeroboam II, Zechariah, Menahem, Pekahiah, and Pekah. These are 16 of the 19 kings who ruled Israel, that is the northern kingdom, from the time of the division of the kingdom until it was taken into the captivity by Assyria. And of every single one of those 16 people whom I named, Scripture says, in if not exactly the same words, very nearly the same litany, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of... Close? Of Jeroboam. All the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. I would not like it to be said that I was the one who set the standard for sin. Jeroboam was the first king of the ten tribes. And it must have been something pretty significant, I submit, that he did, which made him the lodestone of evil for the next 175 years. And everybody who did evil was compared to him. He did evil the same way Jeroboam did evil. Yikes. What a heritage. Do you have any clues what his sin was that was that bad? Well, Jeroboam made calves of gold. He shouldn't have done that. Okay? That's idolatry. He took it on himself to offer sacrifices. That's becoming the priest, taking over the priest's office when he had no right to do that. He declared feasts that the Lord had not made. But those are not specifically the things Scripture talks about as being his sin. Does not condone any of them, obviously. But this is 1 Kings 13, 33-34. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people priests. He made priests? Who can make priests? Who chooses the priests? God. Whosoever he would, he consecrated him. He became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. There was his sin by which he made all Israel to sin. He openly and deliberately disregarded God's distinction between sacred and secular. Choosing common, ordinary, profane. Profane is, just means you, the usual, the ordinary. Choosing those who were profane to fill sacred office. I have to believe on the basis of that and other things we'll talk about that God makes a distinction between secular and sacred. It is a distinction which is very much under fire in our day. I will quote later from a document which asserts, Religion consists of those actions, purposes, and experiences which are humanly significant. Nothing human is alien to the religious. The distinction between the sacred and the secular can no longer be maintained. Not so. Read Exodus 20, 8, 11, 8 to 11, and you will find that's not so. We are told that for six days we are to do secular activities. 
We are to do our work. We are to do what's necessary to make life go on. On the seventh day, what do we do? We come and do God's work, right? Oh, are we awake yet? Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God in it, that you shall come do God's work? That's not what it says. It says on the seventh day we enter into God's rest. I'm going to expand on that a little farther later on, but I want you to start working on that. Not only did God rest on the Sabbath day, he hallowed it, he blessed it. If something as immaterial as time can be divided into holy and profane segments, then there must be some difference between the sacred and the secular. Just for the moment, I'm going to assume something which I do not believe, but for the sake of the argument, here we go. Let us pretend right now that rock and roll is the highest cultural form humanity has yet produced. The best stuff there is. There's nothing offensive about its subject matter. There is nothing about its associations or any of its manifestations which is offensive. It's good stuff. Would we not still have to agree that rock is what the world listens to day in and day out on its boomboxes and iPods and car stereos? Rock has infiltrated the planet to an extent that we just talk it as one word, pop rock. It's all one term, pretty much. And rock has encircled the planet. Listen to the world on American public media and every closing section that they have, which is some local uh, cultural phenomenon musically, the basis underneath it is rock. No matter what corner of the earth, the hit of the day is taken from the sounds of rock music. Rock is a global language. It is the way people do their work. It is the way they express themselves. It is the way they entertain themselves. If there were no other reason at all to challenge the appropriateness of using rock in church, the Sabbath commandment would have to make us think. It's not daily stuff. We should do something that is different on Sabbath. We should not bring the weekday with us. Dan Lucarini has written an interesting book, a good read, by the way, his own journey through the rock scene and the contemporary Christian music praise and worship scene. Along the way, he quotes Rick Warren. You know the name Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Church? Okay? He quotes Rick Warren as follows. This quote happens to be also in Magna Park's article in the Adventist Affirm. We use the style of music the majority of people in our church listen to on the radio. Interesting. They like bright, happy, cheerful music with a strong beat. Their ears are accustomed to music with a strong bass line and rhythm. And again, he says, the music used on Sunday in church should not be any different from the music people listen to on their car radios during the week. There's no difference between sacred and secular, in other words. God doesn't see it that way. God has not instructed us that way. If we are going to adopt that argument, we have to say music is the one realm of human experience that the Sabbath doesn't apply to. Are we ready to go there? Try Ezekiel 22.26. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things, made common, made secular, made ordinary, my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane. And they have not taught the difference between unclean and clean. And they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths. And I am profaned. I am made common, ordinary, secular, if you please, among them. To undertake the worship of a holy God on his holy day by using the most secular, common, ordinary manifestations of our contemporary culture is not just an oxymoron, folks. It's a whole lot bigger than that. So we're going to talk about culture. One can identify that there is a, an intersection, a crossroads, if you please, between church and culture from Jesus' words in the John 17 prayer. I do not pray that you would take them out of the world. I pray that you would keep them from the evil that is in the world. Apparently, Christ thought there was some distinction to be picked on. I do not consider all culture evil. And so I would like to explain how I use the word, how I am thinking when I use the word culture. Marva Dawn gives a very nice description in which she says, Culture connotes every aspect of life that is, a, that is produced by human beings as opposed to what is given 
in creation. To make it clear, a rose is not part of culture. The layout of the rose garden is. A scenic vista is not part of culture. Albert Bierstadt's immense canvas among the Sierra Nevada mountains of California is. That's how he painted it. The fact that a human being has two folds of tissue which can be made to vibrate by passing breath between them is not culture. What we choose to sing is. Roger Scruton then goes on and divides culture into three branches. Common culture, high culture, and popular culture. Interesting distinctions. Common culture has to do with those behaviors and beliefs which define the group that I belong to. That's what makes us a group, is our common culture, the things that we agree on and do together. Those of us who have grown up Adventist or have accepted the Adventist teaching have a very distinct understanding of foot washing as a preparation for the communion service. I recall being a paid singer in a Sunday church on a particular Sunday when there were, I think, seven or eight or nine of us from Southern in the choir at a Presbyterian church. And the pastor rolled rather heavily on the foolishness of the notion of foot washing. However, he really knew he was stepping on our toes, I don't know. I have always wondered. I have never asked him. But foot washing, as we do it, is a particularly Adventist thing. Very few other churches do. High culture includes primarily the arts, the notion of a cultivated mind, a cultivated taste. In that sense, we say a cultured person is one who not only recognizes but appreciates and understands the genius of a poet like Gerard Manley Hopkins or a composer like Johannes Brahms or a painter like Caravaggio. Am I over your heads? You know these names? Some of them? A little bit? Good. All right. I feel better now. Whether that individual is an Adventist is totally irrelevant at that point. We're not talking about his Adventist common culture. We're talking about the notion of high culture. And the two are separate fields. In rebellion against the elitism of high culture, the premise of popular culture is that every humanly produced aspect of life deserves to be considered as no way inferior to those high culture artifacts. In this view, the graffiti on the public washroom wall is as genuinely cultural as the Statue of Liberty. Maybe. The banjo picking of the bluegrasser holds equal status with Yo-Yo Ma playing his cello. Wade Clark Roof takes our thinking about culture a little farther. He says culture has to do with making sense out of life. And as long as culture is the human-produced things, yes, we are looking for ways to make sense out of life. Making sense out of life and formulating strategies for action and the ideas and symbols which people draw on in these fundamental undertakings are implicitly, if not explicitly, saturated with religious meaning. Religion itself, he says, is a set of cultural symbols. Christianity, I think, is a good deal more than that. But religion is a set of cultural symbols. We grasp it more easily if we think of a community of like believers. Prayer caps, garments held closed by hooks and eyes, and horse-drawn buggies are all part of what culture? The Amish culture, of course. And as long as the Amish person lives in an Amish community, it's very easy to maintain those cultural items. They make sense. They're what make us what we are. If the Amish person were to move into the middle of New York City, it would be a little harder to maintain. It would be a lot easier to erode what makes the Amish culture what it is. Belonging to a social set has more significance than we think. Scruton builds his discussion of culture as a phenomenon on the understanding that religion itself is the core of common culture. So what is the culture of Adventism? Well, I've already mentioned foot washing. I'm not going to try to make a comprehensive list. But there are things that I think we would have to include. Baptism by immersion is one. Not that we don't share it with the Baptists, but it is definitely part of Adventist common culture. At least lip service to the sacredness of the Seventh-day Sabbath. I hope it goes beyond lip service. Reverence for the Bible and its teaching, a commitment to its authority. Our peculiar observance of the Lord's Supper, not just foot washing, but using non-alcoholic grape juice and unsalted wafers. And the fact that we do it every three months instead of every week. That's Adventist culture. 
The very concept that one's religious belief should shape one's lifestyle in the areas of health, marriage, our notion of ourselves as last-day Christians, even if we don't like to use the word remnant anymore. It's not a bad word, folks. Our teaching of the soul sleep in death. Very unique to the Adventist church. So if that's what makes up Adventist culture, what makes up 20th, 21st century America's culture? And I'm talking about America because that's where we are and where most of us live. And because so much of American culture has been exported and adopted globally. Maybe you think it's not possible to generalize about the cultural practice of a nation so full of various ethnic and political backgrounds. But there are some things that I think are pretty universal. And I'm going to start with television. Television is unquestionably one of the major influences in American culture and in worldwide culture. At the turn of the century, over 98% of United States homes had a television. That doesn't surprise you. I'm surprised it isn't 99 or 100. No, I know it's not 100%. I know there's one house. You know there's one house, most of you. That's 2.2 sets per household in America. 2.2 sets per household. That's 11 sets in every five homes. And when you walk into Best Buy and Sam's, there are enough of them sitting there that you know it's going to keep going for a long time. This huge phalanx of all the same picture over and over and over again. Graduating high school seniors have on average spent 80% of their discretionary time in front of the tube. That's scary, people. 80% of their discretionary time in front of the tube. Although I'm guessing in the last seven years, some of that has been switched over to the video game screen or the computer or the computer doing video game service. In 1987, William Four wrote that television already even then was, quote, beginning to usurp a role which until recently has been the role of the church in our society. Namely, to shape our system of values, embody our faith, and express our cultural essence. I want to run that by once more. As early as 1987, an observer could write, television is beginning to usurp a role which until recently has been the role of the church in our society. Namely, to shape our system of values, to embody our faith, to express our cultural essence. Each individual in America watches an average of more than four hours of television a day. If you're average, that means you're spending 24, 25, 26 hours a week on television. Even the faithful who do their full three hours on Sabbath morning are still being outweighed nine to one by the indoctrination of the boob tube. Let's not even talk about stewardship of time for the moment. Let's talk about what are the values that television offers us. I'm going to start with crudeness and incivility. I don't sit in front of one very often, but sometimes when my car's oil needs changing, I end up at the station and they've got something going up there. And uh, Like I said about not having ear flaps, it's awfully hard to sit where it is and ignore it. I try. I take crossword puzzles. I take books to read. And I still find myself... But what I find so offensive is the attitude of the talk show hosts. They're constantly out to get something nasty out of you. To make some nasty comment. The talk shows, let alone what they're talking about, that's bad enough also. Another thing television does is cripple our imaginations. Ellen White says we should teach our children to use their imaginations in picturing the glories of heaven. And there are other valuable ways also to use the imagination. But the visual media are death to the imagination. I'm not going to ask how many of you went to see Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. I don't want to know. I don't care. But I do know that those who went to see don't have any question in their mind anymore what Christ looks like. You've seen him. 
Little House on the Prairie. Rings a bell? Laura Ingalls Wilder. What you see on the television all of a sudden takes away your picture that you had in your mind from reading the books about what her little cabin looked like. You've seen it now. And your imagination isn't needed. Movies are not good for the imagination. Movies destroy imagination. And that's hard on our cultural background. Violence, of course, always makes good screenplay. And we, by and large, have left the one-on-one shoot out because it's more fun to blow up whole galaxies at a time. Greed plays very well on television alongside falsity or at least inaccuracy in advertising. Neil Postman, whom I've quoted before, makes an interesting observation. The earliest printed advertisements that you find in newspapers of the 19th century, for instance, are very particular about telling you the merits of what it is they have for sale. This item is good quality because it will last. It is made out of this or that, whatever. Contemporary advertising? Yeah. You don't learn a thing in the world about how well your car is made. What you find out is that the people who drive cars like yours are such happy people. (laughs) And so you could be one, too, if you drove one like it. We don't talk about the quality of the product anymore. Religion, by the way, does not play very well on television. Had you noticed? The very fact that it doesn't play at all simply says it doesn't matter. It's marginal. Leave it off. And when a clergyman does appear, is his role a heroic role? You tell me. But there's even more. I'm going to be awfully dangerous for stepping on toes here. You understand I don't pick on names with any malice of any kind. Even beyond that, a great deal of television is built, a great deal of television is built on the cult of personality. Television lets me see Jay Leno right up close, right? Am I crude enough to say that television also lets me see Steve Conway and Dwight Nelson right up close? And I'm not saying it's for the same purpose, but I want us to ask better questions. I want us to figure out whether that cult of personality And I don't accuse, you you understand, I'm not talking about either of these particular people as soliciting. And we do it because it's so nice because we can see the person's face and we can't if we're two-thirds of the way back. I understand. I know why we do it. But I want us to wonder about whether it's doing more than we think it's doing. We become enamored of the face. We learn to recognize the style. We pick up on the person very easily. What has all this to do with church? Well, I think maybe a couple of things. What you bring to worship is what you have become with or without the Holy Spirit's help in the days between Sabbaths. What you bring to worship is what you have become. And it's not, I think, out of place to say what you have made of yourself. We all know there's no way we're going to build ourselves profitably without the Holy Spirit. But if we leave the Holy Spirit out, we are still building ourselves, not profitably. If you have become less civil, less decent, more greedy, more thing-oriented, less imaginative, and more callous to violence and indecency, less respectful of your pastor's calling, how's that going to affect you when you get to church? How's that going to affect your sensitivity to God, your gratitude to God, your awareness of your own poverty of soul and need of a Savior? We'd like to include here a passage Ellen White wrote in the 4th of July, 1899, Review and Herald. Divine help is provided for men and women. They have the opportunity of cooperating with the heavenly intelligences, of being laborers together with God. There is placed before them the possibility of gaining a fitness for the presence of God. Now, you read that first time around, I read that first time around, that over my lifetime, I have the opportunity of becoming fit to see God when he comes. But have you never heard it said on Sabbath morning, we come into your presence to... And how do we become fit to be in his presence? 
I think the application is not only our whole life and the second coming. I think the application is six days and Sabbath. When we come in a special way into his presence, the way we cultivate our character all week long impacts our fitness for being in his presence. Number two, this cultic identification with the face, I think is not necessarily a spiritually healthy thing. Don't run upstairs and tear the screen down, okay? Do me a favor. I, I don't want to be rabble-rouser. I want us to think. Marvadon says the church is the last place where anyone ought to be famous. Work on that one a while. The church is the last place where anyone ought to be famous. The church is not a personality cult. The church is a fellowship of lost sinners who have been plucked, as it were, as a brand from the burning and given new hope in Jesus Christ and nobody else. This notion of the activity of the one person by himself up front is a spin-off of a star mentality. And I understand that in earlier centuries, in the Protestant churches, when the pastor got up to speak, he got up from being part of a body of elders who were sitting on the platform behind him, and he arose as their spokesman, He spoke on their behalf. They validated his message by their presence there. What do we do now? We clear the platform when it's time for the sermon. And everybody gets out of the way so one man can have the... uh, I was going to say can have the show. Sorry. But it's the way it comes about. And it came about as a result of the television influence. The preacher who's free now to wander back and forth, and that's not sinful, don't get me wrong, The preacher who's free to wander back and forth anywhere and who has the camera following him always, wherever he goes, it started on television. It is part of the cultural spin-off. And if we don't ever ask the question about what it's doing to us, then we don't think about what it might be doing to us. And so I ask you to consider the question. Number three, those who mastermind what you do see on the television are not terribly interested in elevating your soul case you hadn't noticed. Instead, whether on purpose or not, they are actually agents of what is by default the real American religion of the 21st century. You know what the real American religion of the 21st century is? I have said several times that the real religion in America today is tolerance. You like it your way, I like it my way. It's okay. You have it your way. You'll probably get to heaven as fast as I do. It doesn't matter. The road isn't important. But I'm backing down. I think that's only a spin-off of the real American religion. I think you will find this interesting. Any of you here who are aware of the American Humanist Association? Is that a new, new term to some of you? The American Humanist Association, founded in the 1930s, one of its first official statements was a document now known as Humanist Manifesto One. Anybody ever read Humanist Manifesto 1? It doesn't take long. It's only a couple pages. It's on the Internet. You can have it. It even says you can copy it. It does say at the bottom in fine print that if you're copying it for a purpose such as I am using it this morning, they want to give permission. In the third paragraph appear the following words. Quote, While this age does owe a vast debt to the the traditional religions, it is nonetheless obvious that any religion that can hope to be a synthesizing and dynamic force for today must be shaped for the needs of this age. To establish such a religion is a major necessity of the present. It is a responsibility which rests upon this generation. Does it sound to you like they're trying to make a religion? Straightforward. Their own quote. We therefore affirm the following. First, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. And on down through the 15th and last of their premises. As an aside, and referring to an earlier topic in this talk, the seventh section is the one that says the distinction between the sacred and the secular can no longer be maintained. 
Why? Why should it? The first fundamental affirmation gets rid of God. God is the only one who can make things sacred or holy. How are you going to maintain any distinction between the sacred and the secular if you've gotten rid of God? Of course they don't think there's a difference. Now notice section 9 in Manifesto 2, which was prepared and made public 40 years later. That is in 1973. This one also is on their website. The ninth item in their list, the separation of church and state and the separation of ideology and state are imperatives. The state should encourage maximum freedom for different moral, political, religious, and social values in society. It should not favor any particular religious bodies through the, public use, the use of public monies or espouse a single ideology and function thereby as an instrument of propaganda or oppression, particularly against dissenters. Hey, I'll buy on. Sounds good to me. But may I remind you that the humanists are using your tax dollars to promote their self-existent universe in every public school across America? They don't believe in separation of church and state, not if it's their religion. Interesting. You're paying for it. Humanism, in short, believes that humanity is all there is on this planet. There's nothing else. Humanity, by their own statement again, has within itself the power to achieve the realization of the world of its dreams. Yeah, the power probably. The will, uh uh-uh. And that the quest for the good life is still the central task of mankind. Is it really now? If television producers don't believe it, they certainly produce works compatible with it. No wonder... The artistic, creative, cultural art forms presented and promoted on television focus on this life and its pleasures. And ladies and gentlemen, rock music is one of those. I would like to introduce another one of Marva Dawn's gorgeous insights, and I quote, Let us face the question squarely. If television is causing people to be dissatisfied with the worship in our churches... Should we change worship to be more like television? Or should the splendor of our worship cause people to ask better questions about television? That, of course, requires a truly intense look at worship. Was there any splendor in wherever you were last Sabbath morning? Have you ever tried to take that word with you? even sitting aside and watching what's going on. Was there splendor in your worship? And if so, of what sort? We'll get a little closer to that in the next hour. All right, let's talk a little bit about popular culture. Where am I doing for time? About right. Popular culture in a society where several fundamental tenets of humanism are taught in every public school, and these form the inescapable foundation for virtually everything on the television culture. These tenets include that the universe is self-existing and not created, that man has emerged from nature as a result of a continuous process, also known as evolution, that, quote, religion must formulate its hopes and plans in the light of the scientific spirit and method, fourth, that there will be no uniquely religious emotions and attitudes of the kind hitherto associated with belief in the supernatural. I'm going to stick something in here I didn't have in there. Have any of you ever seen something complexly organized appear from causelessness, just suddenly be there? Have you ever seen it? Could you, by repeatable experiment, make it happen? Repeatable experiment is one of the tenets of science. If you can't do it again and make the same thing happen, then your premises are at least questionable. I've never seen it happen. I know of no scientist who's ever seen it happen. Now let me ask, have you ever seen anything complexly organized, produced by an intelligence? Poetry? Music? Art? Literature? You name it. It's all around us. Can you, by repeatable experiment, show intelligence producing something complexly organized? Sure, I can do it again. I'll write you another hymn tonight. Oh, who's doing science, folks? Who's doing science? The man who can't even show you one example, let alone do it over again, and claims it's scientific? Or the man who can show you 
repeatable experiments of intelligence producing something complexly organized. I wasn't going to stick that in there, but I like that one. By definition, popular culture is intended to reach the populace. Make sense? Of course. As an alternative to high culture, it seeks to provide the ideas and symbols that people draw on in making sense out of life for the commoner, for the average man, for the uneducated. Since the goal is to reach everybody, the ideas and the symbols, the means that are used, must be accessible to everybody, right? Otherwise, it's not common culture. Therefore, these ideas and symbols must be built on the lowest possible common denominator. There is no idea, no incentive for excellence, because excellence implies something that isn't everybody, right? I mean, you know, grade inflation. If 90% of the school body is on the honor roll, what good is the honor roll? Yeah? So what? Why bother? Doesn't mean anything. If 5% of the student body is on the honor roll, and you are on there, that means something. Okay. So in order to succeed with the masses, popular culture has to not make any significant demands on the observer, on the participant. It must please him without requiring any expertise. Because experts are those other kinds of people, right? And that's not who we're working for. Its path is the path of least resistance. Its most likely avenue to success is to simply entertain. Because everybody enjoys entertainment. Everybody can be entertained. Face-to-face with the Christian's understanding of the worship of a supreme, omnipotent, compassionate, personal God, entertainment comes up pretty badly wanting. In every syllabus in my course, Music in the Christian Church, I have included this quotation. Worship that is too easy cheats God. Worship that is too easy cheats us. Worship that is too easy cheats us. It deprives us of the grandeur of an infinite God. Our narcissistic culture makes it difficult for many to get outside of themselves, to appreciate ideas and ideals that are larger than they are. Worship must therefore be an invitation, an invitation to the profound joy of the presence of God, involvement in a community of praise, to disciplines which nurture personal and corporate growth in character. Marvadon, the first book of hers that's on your bibliography, if you take it home with you. To the humanist, humanity is all there is. There's nothing more. For the Christian, there is somebody more. There is someone infinitely greater. And the juncture between our planet-bound little lower than the angel's existence and his inconceivable greatness is the real intersect between church and culture. I suspect it will not surprise anybody here that I came here with a set of convictions. Anybody surprised? I thought so. I imagine it will surprise no one that I was expected to present my convictions. Can you live with that? Good. There are many, many people who do not agree with my convictions. I am aware of that. You are aware of that. And some of those have expressed their contrary opinions very well. In the interest of fairness, I have included in your bibliography a book which I don't particularly believe in, but which I think is worth your time reading anyway. The one by Brian Wren, down near the end of the list because it's an alphabetical list. Brian Wren. By the way, Brian Wren has ten hymns in our Adventist church hymnal. Okay? As it happens, one of those I think is absolutely marvelous, and two of them I promise you I would have voted against if I'd been on the committee, but that's beside the point. The author, Brian Wren, makes a very, very good case, as good as can possibly be made as far as I'm concerned, for including any and every musical style in worship. And if you haven't figured it out yet, that's not my conviction. In his comprehensive study of congregational song, Dr. Wren, and he describes himself, quote, as a poet who is also a pastor, theologian, and teacher. And that's interesting how, what order he chooses to put his qualifications in. He is fascinated, he says, by public worship in its varied forms. He outlines in this book a brief trip during which he and his marriage partner, Pastor, visited five New England churches, each of which advertised some form of, quote, contemporary worship. Okay, so he's out on a fact-finding 
expedition. He wants to see what's going on. They also took in, by his description, one weekday evening concert by a praise band, complete with high amplification, flashing lights, and a driving rhythm. By his own description, and I'm quoting, part of what made the experience so attractive to so many people included the compelling rhythms of the music, whose lyrics and melodies surged and ebbed like the tide, yet left few ripples on the sands of memory. If I may translate that, what he says is we didn't remember the words and we can't sing the tunes. What we remembered, and this is his quote, what we remembered was the beat. This is five worship services and one concert. What we remembered was the beat. I continue to quote, the beat was what the worship services too had in common. Different in theology from the me and Jesus to the spirit among us to love God and do justice. Different in musical dialect from folk and folk rock to renewal music and soft rock. What they shared was the insistent rhythms of the popular music of our culture. In his further elaboration of what he means, Dr. Wren says this. When people talk about music with a beat, then what they probably have in mind are the strongly accentuated instrumental rhythms of most current popular music. I think I mentioned earlier, pop rock is all one word basically anymore. Though contemporary worship music has many variants, almost all of it is written with a backbeat and an inner pop rhythmic structure in mind. This is true for music of any tempo. Even the slowest pieces have the same percussive element. Obviously, Dr. Wren approves of this adoption by the church of the popular culture in the midst of which the church exists. Whether or not it is really a good thing, we might determine at least in part by the nature of the culture and how it impacts us. In order to consider whether that is appropriate for church, I would like to propose three models, one of which is totally apocryphal, the other two of which are not. See how your imaginations work. Imagine with me that in the first century church, some successful evangelist, maybe it was Paul, maybe it was one of his colleagues, maybe one of his successors, presents the gospel to some gladiatorial trainees and wins a handful of them to Christianity. Since hand-to-hand combat to the death is what they know and what they are trained for, should they not then form a Christian gladiatorial league? Maybe using the motto, we kill with grace. (laughs) I mean, if this is going to be evangelism, what new convert wouldn't be willing to give his life, even if it meant being hacked to death, to win 20 more converts or 2,000 new converts for the church? Would that have been an appropriate tool for evangelism? Or did the first century church stand in opposition to and pass judgment on that particular piece of Roman culture? Number two. Some years ago, the newscaster and commentator Paul Harvey related to us that there was a young woman who billed herself as a stripper for the Lord. By her own claim, once she finished her act, she was sure there were indeed men in the audience who saw the light. (laughs) I'm not going to ask you to figure out what the rest of the men saw. Is her act Christianizable? Or does it represent a cultural phenomenon outside what Christianity is about? Number three, according to a recent New York Times article, churches all across this country are using Halo 3 as an evangelistic tool. Huh. New idea, yeah? They use it as bait. Because that's what will get young men into their churches. Never mind that you have to be 17 or 18 to buy this thing. They don't ask how old the kids are. And they've got 12 and 13-year-old kids coming in to spend an hour shooting each other down on the TV screen. And then they give them a lesson about the Prince of Peace. Good morning. I propose that rock music is no better fitted than any of those three I have mentioned already. Either for evangelizing or for worship in the cause of Christ. You probably would like to know why. I'm here to tell you why. We spoke yesterday. Those of you who were here at the first session will remember that we described the whole brain involvement of music. And I read you a document, which I can't read you today because somebody asked for that page out of my notes and I let them have it. It's a wonderful description from Daniel Levitin's book about how much of the brain is involved when we are doing music. The answer is all of it. Everything. It is the most whole brain activity, has been argued, is probably the most complex thing human beings ever do. 
with the possible exception of flying a helicopter, which I guess is pretty involved. I did not know until very recently that the cochlea, you know what the cochlea is? A little snail shell in there, you know, the hearing thingy, okay? The cochlea not only sends electrical signals along the auditory nerve for the auditory cortex to be deciphered, it also has projections directly to the cerebellum, which is that so-called primitive portion of the brain, which contains more than half of the brain cells. That's high-powered, dense stuff, folks and is responsible for coordinating sensory input with motor activity control. Okay, so I got a lot of long words here. Make sure we're, we're going along together. It is responsible for coordinating sensory input with motor activity control. In other words, when you hear a gunshot, you are already jumping and running before your brain tells you that's what you heard. Because the defense mechanism, the cerebellum, has said, this is dangerous, do something quick, before your conscious mind can say, hey, that was a gun. The sound goes straight in, straight in, even before you know what it was. That's kind of interesting. The cerebellum is also responsible for overseeing rhythmic and temporal experiences. Daniel Levitin again. This one's kind of fun. Effective music, or groove, when somebody is in the groove, things are going well, same like flow that uh, Mr. C talks about. Effective music, groove, involves subtle violations of timing. And he has already used the illustration of a rat in his hole, and a, the wind is blowing a tree branch so that it bumps against the ground above the, the surface of the ground, and he senses this movement. And if the movement changes, he has reason to be nervous. Just as the rat has an emotional response to a violation of the rhythm of the branch hitting his house, we have an emotional response to the violation of timing in music, which we call a groove. The rat, with no context for the timing violation, experiences it as fear. Something's wrong. We know, through culture and experience, that music is not threatening, and our cognitive system interprets these violations as a source of pleasure and amusement. This emotional response to groove occurs via the ear cerebellum nucleus accumbens limbic circuit rather than via the ear auditory cortex circuit. Our response to groove is largely pre-conscious or unconscious because it goes through the cerebellum rather than the frontal lobes. What is remarkable is that all these different pathways integrate into our experience of a single song. All of which is a very academic way of saying something Jimi Hendrix said a whole lot more directly. Music is a spiritual thing of its own. We can hypnotize people with music, and then when they are at their weakest point, we can preach into their subconscious what we want them to say. In other words, we have the straight road in. We get there before the mind gets there. We get into the body, into the brain, before the mind wakes up. Or would you rather have a sociologist tell you, Simon Frith, a word-based approach is not helpful at getting at the meaning of rock. The words, if they are noticed at all, are absorbed after the music has made its mark. Timothy Leary, some of you may know the name of the Harvard psychologist who advocated and practiced marijuana, the use of marijuana and LSD, wrote in his book, The Politics of Ecstasy, don't listen to the words. It's the music that has its own message. I've been stoned on the music many times. The music is what will get you going. Or listen to Ira Altshuler in his study of psychiatrist experiences with music as a therapeutic agent. Music, which does not depend upon the master brain to gain entrance into the organism, can still arouse by way of the thalamus, the relay station of all emotion, sensation, and feeling. Once a stimulus has been able to reach the thalamus, the master brain is automatically invaded. Nice choice of word. And here's the explanation that comes from Daniel and Bernadette Skubik. The conclusion of our studies is twofold. First of all, lyrics are of minor importance here. Whether the words are evil, innocuous, or based in Holy Scripture, the overall neurophysiological effects generated by rock music remain the same. There is simply no such thing as Christian rock that is substantively different in its impact. Second, 
You like that one? You like this one. Second, short-term implications involve a decrease in receptivity for discursive communication. Discursive discourse. A decrease in the ability to receive discourse. A decrease in the mental capacity to hear what the preacher says. While long-term implications pose serious questions for the rehabilitation of degraded left hemisphere cognitive skills, in less technical jargon and in specific context, and this is all in emphasis by the writers, we should expect the abilities to receive and to deliver the gospel, to pray discursively, and to study scripture are compromised by rock music. Ooh, what a winner. The evil one has got on his hands. He has not only devised a musical manifestation which is addictive, and people who are rock music addicts, when they are taken off rock music, show the signs of withdrawal, just as they would from a chemical dependency. Not only does he have a manifestation which raises the pulse rate by typically 10 beats per minute within five minutes of listening. I don't know if you are enough into exercise to know what you're supposed to do with your pulse rate. It's not supposed to go this way, it's supposed to go this way, yeah? The more you exercise, the stronger the heart becomes, the slower the pulse beats, the, the slower you use it. Yeah, okay, good. So rock music raises your pulse 10 beats per minute in the first five minutes of listening. How long, how, how long do you have to exercise to get your resting pulse down 10? Weeks, I can tell you. It's a long process. Not only has he devised a musical manifestation which is addictive and raises your pulse rate, it also causes the overproduction of adrenaline, which the brain then converts to adrenochrome, which is chemically related to LSD and mescaline. Remember Timothy Leary? I've been stoned on the music many times. Yep, literally. In its proper manifestation, it degrades the physiological organs of hearing, you all know that loud is synonymous with rock, and the louder the better. And typically a rock concert is approximately 30 decibels above the threshold for damage to your ears. And as I mentioned yesterday, if you're doing it through the little ones, at least turn the volume down, please. Save your ears. It affects hormonal secretion, lowers blood sugar levels, impairs judgment. By its very nature, it encourages the lowest common denominator, anti-intelligence. Its own proponents have described it as anti-religious, anti-nationalistic, and anti-morality. That's a quote from John Lennon, by the way. But the devil has done it, not only having all of those traits, but he has done it with a medium which you can't shut out if it's in the neighborhood. And he has, has succeeded in recruiting the youth of the entire globe as its advocates. Wow. If there's any conflict between the message of the music and the message of the text, guess which one wins? Hands down, invariably, and every time. It's just how we're wired up. The music gets there first. There is a quote from the rock drummer King Coffee, who said the whole idea of rock and roll is to offend your parents. Okay, so. But if we're trying to sing the message of God's grace and love to a music whose burden is to offend your parents, how does that fit with the fifth commandment? The word syncretism means the fusion of diverse religious beliefs and practices. Syncretism is what happened when the freed Israelites demanded a God to take them back to Egypt and Aaron obliged. Some of the people, the mixed multitude, had not given up the sacred bull calf of Egypt. Now this Yahweh fellow that they'd come across had done some pretty impressive things. He got him across the river. That was nice. But surely if they could combine his power with the familiar visibility of the God they knew, they'd have something marvelous, right? Wonderful. A really powerful religion. It's been suggested that Israel in later years never really threw over their belief in the one God Moses had worshipped, but God was supposed to be the one who provided rain for the crops. Baal also provided rain for the crops. Let's worship both. We get twice as much rain and we get to have a lot of fun in the meantime. Same kind of fun rock music offers, folks. When rock music is the medium, rock music is the message. Period. But God has never offered to share his throne with any other deity. Certainly not the one who leads humans to see themselves as all-sufficient and self-sufficient. 
Manifesto 1. Man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams. That he has within himself the power for its achievement. That's the religion of 21st century America. That's the religion of the culture in which we live. That is what the most pervasive music of our culture also believes. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you... What? A drug-induced psychedelic high? I will give you what? A highly amplified cultural phenomenon that will destroy your hearing? I will give you what? Free license for sex whenever you want it? Rock music is sex. The big beat matches the body's rhythms. Frank Zappa. I will give you what? The ultimate egocentrism? The main purpose of rock and roll is celebration of the self. Daryl Hall of Hall & Oates. After ten years of bland, brilliant music, we were back to what rock and roll should be. Nasty, crude, rebellious people's music. Tom Robinson. Come unto me, and I will give you what? Rest. Has it ever crossed your mind that as Christians we serve the only God anyone in the universe has ever invented or known who offers man rest? Read it in Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I will tell you something. The God of efficiency never lets you lie down. The God of success never lets you lie down. The God of money never lets you lie down. There's a poster that has been put up in more than one school of music, I'm sure. What is next year's contest winner doing right now? Practicing. That's not rest, folks. David served a God who not only let him lie down, he made him lie down. Sometimes we need that, too. We tend to get pretty busy trucking along on our own. He made him lie down, and in shepherd lingo, Saying that he made, it, made him lie down said it made it possible for him to lie down because a sheep will not lie down unless it is free from four things. Unless it is free from hunger. Unless it is free from the fear of predators. Unless it is free from parasites. Unless it is free from social friction within the flock. And that should say something to us about our church communities also. David said, my God makes me lie down. He has taken care of all four of those. I can rest. The fourth commandment. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. On the seventh day come and do all my work. Yeah? No. Not his work. His rest. And if we accept his rest, he makes our work his work. Six days of the week. Let's not muck up God's rest with that which even the world knows, even its proponents know, even its performers know, is not just common, not just secular and profane. It is base and destructive. The greatness of his gift accommodates no comparison with that other stuff. Lift your sights. Accept his deliverance, his rest, his worship, and worship him in the beauty of holiness, not under the stimulation of the beat. Father in heaven, how we worship you does say something about how we understand you. And if we see you as a taskmaster, as a hard driver, we have to worship by working hard. But you have shown yourself to be the shepherd, the shepherd who makes it possible for us to lie down, to rest, to be at ease in your presence, sinful though we have been because of your magnificent love for us. We need principles in our lives to know how to live and how to worship. Give us the strength and the grace to live by them and to apply them as you would have us to, in Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.com.
audioverse.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.